Romans chapter 3. Let us pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I was a little bit disappointed this week when I turned up the commentaries and began to prepare uh, for this evening to read one of the commentators saying that the first paragraph of our passage is one of the most difficult, perhaps, in the epistle. I thought, I thought I'd managed to pass off all the difficult passages to Neil and to Noble, uh, but somehow I'd got that wrong and uh, an oversight. So it's a difficult passage. The commentators who are experts in these things are, are saying that. Perhaps you felt it as we read it. In this passage, Paul says two things that might appear contradictory at first. What he's going to do is he's going to affirm God's continued faithfulness to his covenant people, Israel. But he's also going to, to affirm God's judgment on Israel at the same time. And he's going to ask us to hold those two things in tension. We'll see, see more of that as we go on. For Paul, God's faithfulness to his people in no way precludes his righteous judgment. So let's see how this works out. Verse 1, we begin, Paul asks a question, what advantage is there then in being a Jew? Paul uses this what then phrase a number of times throughout Romans, and it usually means that he's asking a question about what he's just been teaching in order to further develop his argument. So we should read these opening verses of chapter 3 in the light of what we've read in chapter 2. In chapter 2, Paul's been teaching about God's righteous judgment. And he shows that the Jews have no advantage simply on the grounds of their ethnicity or their circumcision or on any other outward attribute. Look again at chapter 2, verse 29. A person who is a Jew, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. So a Gentile with a circumcised heart is every bit as much a part of the people of God as any Jew who has the law and circumcision. Perhaps we could summarize the teaching of chapter 2 by noticing again what Paul says in verse 11. God does not show favoritism. So with that quick backward glance to chapter 2, we're in a better position to understand this question that Paul raises here in verse 1 of chapter 3. If God doesn't show favoritism, chapter 2, what advantage is there then in being a Jew or in circumcision? Good question. By the way, at this point, Paul may be raising questions that people have actually asked him. He's maybe heard of these questions coming to him from Rome. 
or else he may simply be raising these questions himself uh, as a teacher, a way of asking questions about what he's just said to give him a chance to develop his teaching more clearly for the readers in Rome. I think that's probably more likely. Bear in mind that Paul's a Jew himself. So these questions about Jews and the gospel of Jesus Christ are ones that he's been grappling with by now for years. What does it mean to be a Jew and to be a follower of Jesus Christ? In chapter 2, Paul's told us that having the law and circumcision, being a Jew makes no essential difference on the day of judgment. As we've said, it makes the question of verse 1 a natural question, and at least at first, it should suggest a very simple answer. What advantage is there in being a Jew? None. That's what we're expecting Paul to say after reading chapter 2. But that answer would only make sense if we'd missed the point of chapter 2. Paul doesn't say in chapter 2 that the Jews don't have any advantages over Gentiles. He doesn't say that. He's simply saying that those advantages won't carry over to the final judgment. Look again at chapter 2, verses 17 to 20. Paul admits there that Jews rely on the law and boast in God. They know his will and they approve of what is superior because they're instructed by the law. They're a guide for the blind and light to those who are in the dark. Paul admits that Jews have unparalleled access to God's word, God's truth in the law. But he insists in chapter 2 that having that law in itself isn't enough. We've got to do the law in order to stand under the righteous judgment of God. It's not inconsistent then for Paul to answer his own question from verse 1 in verse 2 by saying, much in every way, the Jews have many advantages. Paul says here, he goes on then to say, first of all, it looks like he's going to give us a long list of the advantages that Jews have over Gentiles. But actually, he only names one at this point. He names one advantage. He reminds his mostly Gentile audience that the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. For me, this passage reminded me of things that we've been learning in Deuteronomy recently. In chapter 4, Moses reminds the people of what a privilege it is to, to be the people of God who've been given the law of God. He imagines the surrounding nations looking at Israel, verse 8, and saying, what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I'm setting before you today? Having God's law throughout their history gives a Jewish community huge privileges over pagan Gentiles. This is the one advantage that Paul chooses to focus on at this point in the letter. It's not that Paul can't think of any more advantages being Jewish. In chapter 9, he's going to enumerate many more advantages that the Jew has. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. 
There's the divine glory. There's the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. There's are the patriarchs, and from them are traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Okay, let's come back to our passage and this one advantage of being Jewish, which Paul addresses here, this being entrusted with the very words of God. It's a very great distinction for Israel, for the Jewish people. But what it hasn't done is made them faithful. As soon as they were given the law, they rebelled. They kept rebelling right throughout their history. At the time of Paul's writing, Israel is still in rebellion against God. So Paul comes away from his main argument for a while in verse 3 to deal with some questions that people may have about this advantage that the Jews have in having God's law. He asks us another question in the form of two questions. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? What's the unfaithfulness that Paul is talking about here? Well, it, it could be a lot of things. But as we read on in the epistle, we'll discover that, that it's particularly Israel's unwillingness to embrace Jesus as the Messiah. If, if the word of God really is the word that talks at all points about a coming savior, a people who don't accept him in the moment when he arrives are people who haven't been faithful to that word. They haven't received what God has given them in that word. Notice here the contrast that Paul makes between Israel's faithlessness and God's faithfulness. Even when Israel have failed to keep God's law, have failed to keep covenant, God cannot break his covenant. The way Paul words his question in verse 3, it's not hard to anticipate his answer in verse 4. It's an emphatic, not at all. No way, says Paul. When Paul says, let God be true, he, he means that God's reliable, God's trustworthy, God's true to his word. He's not only faithful when some are unfaithful, but he remains true even if every other person proves to be a liar. You'll see that Paul introduces here a quotation at this point. And the footnote will tell you that it comes from Psalm 51. Even if you don't know many Psalms, you may know that one. It's that very famous Psalm of David's repentance after the prophet Nathan confronted him with his sin with Bathsheba. In that Psalm, David, we can imagine David avoiding his sin for a long, long time. He's tried to keep that secret for as long and as well as he can. But in this moment, when he finally accepts his sin, he expresses to God that God is justified when he judges his sin. Last week, Noble, opening chapter 2, stressed 
the fundamentally positive nature of the judgment of God. Paul's point here is that God's judgment is an aspect of his faithfulness. That was a strong theme in chapter 2, and it's still here in chapter 3. God is equally faithful when he judges people's sin as when he fulfills his promises to bless. I wonder, could we dwell on that for a second? In the terms that we're becoming familiar with in the book of Deuteronomy, God keeps his promises both when he blesses, but also when he curses. Both are aspects of his faithfulness. So how do we summarize what we've learned so far in verses 1 to 4? Paul's building on the argument of chapter 2. He's showing us further that while the Jews do have a special part in the purposes of God, it doesn't protect them from his righteous judgment. What Paul's done in the opening four verses of chapter 3 is to show how God is true to his word. The word that includes warnings of judgment as well as promises of blessing. I hope we can start to speed up a little now. In verse 5, Paul raises another question. A question to test what he's just been teaching in verses 1 to 4. If our unrighteousness gives God the opportunity to demonstrate his righteousness, surely that's a good thing. Surely it's not fair then that God should punish us for that. Again, just as in verse 4, Paul's emphatic with his response. Verse 6, certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the earth? Paul's making a point here that might not be obvious to us at first. We've said so far that God's righteous to judge sin because he's upholding the promises of his word. Here he's showing us that God is righteous to judge sin for a second reason. It's not only that he's being true to his word, it's also now that he's being true to his character. When Paul asks, how else could God judge the world? He, he may have an idea like Genesis 18 in mind. You might remember Genesis 18. Abram's pleading with God to spare the city of Sodom. And Abram uses a, a very memorable phrase, will not the judge of all the earth do right? Yes, Paul says, the judge of all the earth will do right. It's who he is. It's in his character to always do right. So God's righteous judgments stem not only from his promises in his word, but also from his character. In verses 7 and 8, Paul simply reiterates the same line of questions. He highlights the ridiculous logic that, of, of these questions, and he ends the paragraph condemning anyone who might be thinking this way. This isn't easy, is it? I'd like to pause again for a second to summarize the ground that we've covered so far. In chapter 2, Paul challenged Jewish presumption of salvation through circumcision or through keeping the law. 
but he doesn't want us to get the wrong end of the stick. God is faithful to his promises to Israel. His righteousness is steady and dependable. So in verses 1 and 2, Paul's defending Israel. As we move into verses 3 and 4, he's back on the offensive against Israel. He reminds the Roman Christians that God's faithfulness is ultimately not to Israel, but to his own person and promises. God is therefore righteous even while he punishes his own people for their sin and rewards them for their obedience. Finally, in verses 5 to 8, Paul challenges the notion that we should excuse sin because it always magnifies God's righteousness. Such an attitude brings God's name into disrepute. Perhaps you're wondering what any of this might have to do with us. Well, as I've reflected on this passage, I've come to see how entirely relevant it is for us. You see, we are a community that emphasizes God's grace for our sin. What a beautiful truth that is. We want to reiterate that. We want to keep emphasizing that for as long as we possibly can. But the the gospel of grace, that preaching that there's grace for all our sin, brings a danger with it. And a passage like this helps us to see it. Reveling as we do in God's grace, we might imagine that we're exempt then from any concern about our sin. And all the while, we fail to live for God's glory. We fail to live as light of the world, drawing lost people home. We bring God's name into disrepute. In this passage, Paul has reminded us that God's righteousness is beautifully displayed when he judges as much as when he saves. Let's learn to take this to heart. Let's do what we have just said as we have sung, and that is to stand on every promise of his word. If we take that song to heart, then we mustn't forget that God promises in the New Testament as well as the Old Testament to rebuke and chastise his people for their sin, as well as to bless them out of his abundant grace. Paul's message, I think, is very much relevant for us today. We've spent a a considerable amount of time in verses 1 to 8. We can deal with verses 9 to 20 much more quickly. Notice that Paul begins this section in verse 9 with another question. What shall we then conclude... In this short short section, we'll find Paul concluding not just the argument that began in chapter 3, verse 1, this passage we're looking at this evening, but summarizing and applying an argument that he's began to develop way back in chapter 1, 
verse 18. So this is the conclusion of the last three sermons, and not just this one. The clues there in verse 9. Looking back over the letter so far, Paul says, We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under the power of sin. What Paul's going to do in a moment is bring some corroborating evidence to these charges that he's been laying against Jews and Gentiles. In verses 10 to 18, he uses some pretty loosely related Old Testament quotations. And what he's doing is he's confirming the universality of human sin and also the variety of forms that our sin takes. And then finally, in verses 19 to 20, he draws out the implications of this universal bondage to sin. All stand condemned before the divine bar of judgment. All are unable to escape that condemnation by anything that we do. The conclusion of this section prepares the way beautifully for the message of the gospel, the proclamation of God's righteousness in Christ. We're going to have to wait uh, until our next Roman sermon before we get to see that more fully. Just now, as we come to these, this last part of our passage, let me deal quickly with a question regarding the whole passage. You might have noticed that both parts of our passage begin with roughly the same question. The question about whether there's any advantage of being a Jew. Have a look again. Verse 1, what advantage then is there in being a Jew? Verse 9, Paul speaking as a Jew says, do we have any advantage? Now, now there's no problem with Paul repeating a question. Any, anybody who's involved in, in public speaking or communication will tell you about the value of repetition. The problem doesn't come with the questions, it comes with the answers. Look at the answers. Paul's first answer in verse 1, yes, Jews are advantaged much in every way. Paul's second answer, verse 9, to the questions, do Jews have any advantage? Not at all. What's going on here? Paul's making two complementary but not contradictory points. His first point, the one that he's making at the beginning of the chapter, is of the privilege that the Jews have as the people of God. God has spoken to them in their history. He's made promises to them, but he won't ever break. The second point, which he's been making throughout chapter 2 and is revisiting now as he brings the argument of the first three chapters to a close, is that the Jews have no advantage at all when it comes to God's impartial judgment on every human being. In chapters 1 and 2, Paul has brought a comprehensive indictment on the whole of humanity. In the closing half of chapter 1, if you remember it, Neil preached it a few weeks ago, his focus was on, predominantly on the Gentile world. In chapter 2, which Noble guided us through last week, the focus came on, on the Jewish people. They were brought before the divine bar of God's judgment. 
And in chapter, in verse 9 now, Paul tells us about his purpose in the letter so far. He wants to show us that all people stand charged. All who haven't experienced the righteousness of God by faith are under sin. They're helpless captives to sin's power. As far as Paul's concerned, there are no exceptions to this. Everyone is under the power of sin. Can you hear that? Everyone needs the gospel. In his commentary, Douglas Moo puts it like this. For the problem with people is not just that they commit sins. Their problem is that they are enslaved to sin. What is needed, therefore, is a new power to break in and set people free from sin, a power found in and only in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul devotes the next eight verses to a list of quotations from Scripture. He uses these to back up his claims of the universal human sinfulness. If you look at the footnotes, you'll see that most of the quotations come from the Psalms, with the exception of the one in verses 15 to 17. And that footnote will tell you that it comes from Isaiah. At first glance, you might think it, it just looks a little bit haphazard. I, I confess I, I saw it that way at first. But if you look a little bit longer, you'll see that it's not hard to see some signs of structure and sequence. We see the overall theme in the opening and closing verses, the bookends. There's no one righteous, verse 10. There is no fear of God in their eyes, verse 18. Verses 11 and 12, they develop the first line with a series of five generally synonymous repetitions of the theme, there is no one righteous. The reference to all people in verse 12, it just serves to increase the power of Paul's insistence on the universality of sin. The next four lines have something in common. Maybe you can see it now that I'm pointing it out. Verses 13 and 14. It talks about sins of speech. Each line refers to a different organ of speech. Throats, tongues, lips, mouths. Take all the sins of speech out of the world. And you take a lot of sin out of the world. Verses 15 to 17, on the other hand, focus of sins of violence against others. The overall message here isn't at all hard to establish. All people are sinful in all sorts of ways. There's a comprehensiveness over all of this. In last year, in 2021, when I first came in Hamilton Road, I invited you to join with me in a program of psalm reading, reading a psalm a day and, and trying to pray it back to God. Whether you got involved in that or not, if you've ever had a go at reading the psalms, you'll know that there are a large number of them that you could classify as enemy psalms. That is psalms where David or some other psalmist 
cries out to God because of the difficulties they're experiencing from an enemy. They're godless. They sin with their lips. They practice violence. In recent years, I've found this to be a really helpful part of God's word. It feels like it gives you permission to name how difficult some people can sometimes become in our lives. It gives us a chance to name that we have enemies. There are bad people out there. As I've read this passage this week, I've experienced a shift. Paul's taken these enemy psalms, which are written by the psalmist, the perspective to describe him over there, my enemy, and Paul's applied them to me. He's made me the baddie. I'm now the sinner, the unrighteous one who sins in thought, in word, and in deed. It's unsettling to say the least. And it's entirely what Paul intends. He wants each one of us to know that we're all sinful in all sorts of ways. In verses 19 to 20, Paul wraps up the arguments he began way back in chapter 1. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. He, he uses an interesting image from the courtroom here. In Paul's culture, whenever a defendant has no more grounds for defense, nothing more to say in response to the charges brought against them, they were expected to shut their mouth. That's the point we've reached now, Paul says. The whole world stands accused without any defense. It's time to shut up before the righteous judge. There's not a single thing that any one of us can say to make us right before the living God. There's not a single thing that any one of us can do. We're all in the same boat. Without Christ, we are lost. Christ, our only hope. When I introduced this series a few weeks ago, I explained to you why I'd given it the title, One Gospel, One People. Paul insists throughout this letter that there really is only one gospel and that every one of us needs to accept it to come to God. In these opening chapters, our focus has been on our need 
for the gospel. Really, that's what the first three chapters of Romans do. It shows us our sin and shows us that we stand under God's judgment. And already in this letter, we're being shown how much we have in common. Perhaps you'd never thought of it this way. Maybe you'd never thought of it in these terms before, but our sin gives us a strange kind of unity. You see, we're all sinners through and through. Ministers and elders, every bit as much as members and lay people, women as well as men, older people as well as the young, our sin if we'll fully and finally accept it, can serve as a great basis for unity. If that sounds like strange theology to you, flick back to those opening verses of chapter 2. Paul tells a divided church in Rome, you, for, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. We're all in this together, this sinful mess, all of us. Brothers and sisters, this is the gospel we need in Hamilton Road. We don't need a gospel for sinners out there. We need a gospel for sinners in here. We need it because we've got a spirit of judgmentalism in our church family. People going around criticizing one another, people judging each other. Folks, whenever I judge you, it's because I think I'm better than you. That's, that's why we judge one another. Because we consider ourselves better than each other. If only we could accept the gospel, Paul's gospel, that we're all sinners, we'd have much less of that. If only we could accept that we're all sinners, we'd be much less judgmental. We'd be much more able to bear with one another. When we're sinners, we know that we're forgiven, and so we forgive. I've seen this enough times in my ministry to recognize it by now. No one gets angry like the self-righteous. They can absolutely explode when someone offends them or when things don't go their way. They're perfect after all. So of course, they'd be very cross and very impatient with the failings of others. A sinner is different. When you point out their failings to a sinner, to a person who recognizes their sin and actually believes the gospel, who actually stands in it, whose identity is, is based in it, they don't explode. They say, you've told me I'm a sinner Tell me something new. Thanks for that. But honestly, 
You don't know the half of it. I'm sinful in ways you can't even imagine. These folks are able to say that without exploding. They're able to say that without coming undone. Why? Because they believe the gospel. They believe, along with Paul, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Those who give up hope in themselves and their righteousness, those who put their hope only in Jesus Christ, those who believe the one gospel, they and they only get to become the one people of God. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for the gospel, the good news that though there's no righteousness in us, our righteousness has been revealed, and it's open to all by faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, we need that gospel, every one of us. Lord, if we still are imagining that the gospel of your grace is for for those people over there, something that we need to be sharing with them because we, we don't really need it very much ourselves. Lord, open our blind eyes. Show us, every one of us, that we're sinful in every imaginable way. And then, Lord, in your grace, put a huge smile on our face as we remember that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Lord, thank you for the gospel. We pray that each one of us would be opening our, our hearts in a new way to receive your grace. And Lord, as we do so, We pray that the spirit of, of criticism and of judgmentalism, of, of those things that keep us apart, would diminish. And that our unity in the gospel would grow. We pray this in Jesus' name.